Who are we? Are you sure you want to know? We're your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts, Sean and Peter, and welcome to So Much to Tell, a Raimi Spider-Man podcast. This episode is all about the capitalistic king of crime, the murderous magnate, the Oscorp Oracle himself, the Green Goblin. So sit on down and let's swig that serum as we dive deep into the devious mind of Master of Disaster Norman Osborn and that grotesque gremlin, the Green Goblin. So, uh, so Sean, I have to say, I have to say that uh, I think you're particularly excited about this episode. I think we, I think you and me both, I think we're both very excited to talk about this topic. Well, uh, you were just like really pushing for this Goblin one. I mean, you were just telling me before we started recording just how much you love the Green Goblin. Like he's kind of like a role model of yours. Uh. Like, Someone you think kids should look up to. Who doesn't aspire to be a uh, mass murdering terrorist on a glider with the Power <laughs> Ranger suit? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know. Not my words, not my words. You said, Pete, you know, uh, yeah, I'll be lucky if I become half the man the Green Goblin is. <laughs> but but you are you are excited for this, and I'm excited for it too, but I know you you really were pushing for the Green Goblin discussion. I, I think there's a lot of jumping off points here to some very interesting topics from corporate culture to the military industrial complex to different philosophies about objectivism versus altruism to family relations, uh, father-son dynamics. There, there's just so much to so much to unpack here. Let's jump off those uh, Ab- points. Absolutely, then. let's take the dive. Well, as we all know, the Green Goblin is one of Spider-Man's oldest foes. Yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he was revealed in Amazing Spider-Man number fourteen in 1964. Okay, so so one of the very earliest issues of the comic. I mean, I think he's one of the best known and certainly one of the most notorious Spider-Man villains. We all know that in the comics, he infamously murdered Gwen Stacy, uh, one of the more notorious and infamous. Um, plots in the Spider-Man comic series. And certainly the the climactic showdown in Spider-Man 1 is is an obvious reference to that or an obvious interpretation of that just with Mary Jane instead of Gwen Stacy. Yeah, highly based on or inspired by uh, the night Gwen Stacy died. Yeah. And I think he was a great choice for the first movie to be kind of the uh, kind of the villain there. Really the the arch arch villain of the Spider-Man movies. I was going to say, yeah, arguably the arch nemesis of the whole trilogy not just the first movie but his the specter of norman osborne hangs over the other two movies quite literally you have mm-hmm. his ghost or at least a very vivid hallucination appearing to harry in the second and third movies so certainly norman norman's shadow looms large over both peter peter and harry mm-hmm. yeah and you know what's interesting to me is that um when Raimi got on board the sandman and electro were lined up to be the villains from James Cameron's involvement on the project. Hmm. And uh, Raimi sort of decided that it would be better to go with Norman just because he's, you know, the father of Peter's best friend, and he knew that would lead to some better dramatic confrontations and dramatic situations. Whereas, you know, Sam and Electro, they're, you know... Yeah, they're great villains, but not necessarily great for setting up some of these different storylines. Yeah, they don't have as much connection to Peter Parker. You're right, because uh, they set up Norman Osborn in that first movie, and they had that dynamic between Harry and Norman, and then also between Peter and Norman, and almost in a way like a triangle between Peter, Norman, and Harry that went on for all three movies. Yeah, you're right. All these different sort of father-son dynamics and all these different... I mean, in a way, you could argue that almost Peter and Harry, it it was almost like a sibling rivalry competing for Norman's love and attention, especially in that first movie, which of them was going to be more likely to get positive uh, attention from Norman. 
and certainly you could see a lot of jealousy in Harry. Absolutely. Well, like, you know, Harry says, you know, I, I think he wants to adopt you, you know, <laughs> and uh, later on in the movie, Norman does say, you know, uh, you're like a brother to him. That makes you family. Well, he says that makes you family. But what in other words, that makes Peter his son. Yep. Uh, yep. So, yeah, he absolutely wants Peter as his son more than anything else. There is definitely a rivalry. Uh, I was looking at an early draft of David Kep's script, and uh, there's a part in the beginning when, you know, we're introduced to Harry and Norman uh, when they're rolling up to the field trip. And uh, Norman tells his son quite angrily that uh, you may have inherited the name Osborne, but you haven't earned it. Ooh. And that's and that's the whole thing. You know, Norman respects Spider-Man for his physical power and he respects Peter for his mental power. He certainly, yeah, he certainly respects Spider-Man enough to uh, essentially offer to go into business with him terrorizing New York, but still like to make him a proposal like that. I certainly don't think Norman would op- make an offer like that to somebody he considered his lesser. Oh, yeah. It might be helpful to start talking about Norman in the Green Goblin to kind of go roughly in chronological order. So when we first meet him in the beginning of the first movie, we see him just as Norman. He's not the Goblin yet, but we can see some of his different personality elements there that will certainly be impacted one way or the other by his transformation. Yeah. So we're introduced to him pretty early on in the first movie when Peter's class, his high school class, is going on a field trip, I believe, to look at spiders or... I guess, various uh, exhibits. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know if the uh, the focus of the field trip is the spiders or the electron microscope. I don't know what they're there actually for. Anyway, we meet Norman and Harry, who drive separately to the field trip, by the way, so he didn't ride the bus with all the other students, which just serves to emphasize how alienated Harry must feel from all these other students or how he feels very self-conscious about coming from a family of such uh, esteem and wealth because he, he doesn't even get to take the bus like everybody else. You raise a good point right there, Sean. I mean, in some ways, you want to wonder how did this son of a multimillionaire industrialist become friends with, you know, dorky little poor nerd over in the corner. But they're both outsiders. And it's be- exactly because they come from complete opposite ends of the spectrum. One's brilliant and poor, one's not brilliant and rich, and they don't fit in with the normal group of people. In fact, you know, Norman tells him right from the beginning, you know, don't be ashamed of who you are. And, uh, and that's something that I guess Harry is. He's sort of ashamed of, you know, he wants to be more like a normal person. Exactly. And at the same time, he wants to be the person his father wants him to be. And he's neither of those things. So he's just as lost as Peter is. And so they make really great friends, I guess, in that capacity. I just wish we had gotten to see a little bit more of their friendship or how they met or something like that, because, I mean, it's it, it's kind of unclear how long Harry was going to Midtown High before that field trip, because it certainly sounds like he went to a number of different high schools. So I don't know how much how much time he was at that high school before you know we meet them on that field trip. But certainly it seems like he and Peter have a pretty, pretty solid friendship, certainly going back some substantial period of time. Yeah. Good point. I wonder how long they were together. Well, we, we learned in the third movie that Harry, quote unquote, protected Peter for a number of years from being bullied or hassled. And, it, and we even see that in the first movie for what it's worth, because we see him stand up to those bullies that are picking on Peter at the uh, spider exhibit. And he's trying to take the pictures. Yeah. And, and the bullies right there, they make fun or of his they, father. Fire your father. Yeah, exactly. They make fun of Harry right there for being rich and different from everybody else. Yeah. Normally you, th- you think like that people that are rich, they aren't usually subjected to such harassment, but uh, you know, in that particular high school, certainly being wealthy does not seem to be a virtue. 
No, and like I said, it really does, you know, I think the movie's very pithy. Like, it doesn't maybe dwell super deeply on a lot of things, but like everything that it shows you, there's a lot of meat to it. And I think just the little bits we do get of Harry and Peter carry a lot of weight, you know? And, and I do wish we would have gotten more, but like you definitely see why they get along so well, the two of them against the world. So all this, all this does relate back to Norman Osborn in the sense that Harry's relationship with his father is certainly a big reason why he feels so different and like such an outsider at that high school and probably a big reason why he gravitates to Peter, who also probably feels like a big outsider in a school like that. Yeah. And the two of them form with Norman, some sort of like a pseudo love triangle, more of a respect triangle. Exactly. Uh, You know, significantly we set up that really important detail, which I love uh, when, when Norman meets Peter, they introduce themselves. They have this great meeting of the minds for a moment. Norman, something of a scientist himself you know he's published this paper on nanotechnology ah yes the the infamous quote right and he's really he's aware that peter's smart but like when he realizes just how smart he's on his level he understood his paper in nanotechnology enough to write a paper about it he's really impressed and that's when we sort of set up this whole you know i think he wants to adopt you right there he's this really the first father figure we see for peter in the movie and so throughout the movie, it becomes sort of this moral philosophical battle for Peter's soul between, you know, Norman as the father on one side and Ben as the father on the other. That's set up right from the beginning. Hmm. We already established that um, Uncle Ben is on the other side of this whole big business thing. He's on hmm. the receiving end because one of his first lines is corporations are downsizing their people and uh, <laughs> upsizing their profits. You know, that's one of the first thing he says. So, like, I think that's an intentional thematic putting them on the opposite ends of this thing. Because he's saying this is what corporations do. They they chew up people and spit them out in the name of their bottom line. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I'm just one of the people they do that to. So, like, even from the beginning, there's this whole war between them. Yeah. I certainly think, too, it's interesting that now that you mention it, I'll bet you Peter never really got a lot of intellectual stimulate not stimulation but i i feel like he didn't connect intellectually with uncle ben so much as as he did norman in there i mean you can never picture peter having a conversation with uncle ben about nanotechnology and so i have to wonder if that's not that like there was a divide or a, a gap between peter and uncle ben but certainly i think peter loved uncle ben and respected him as a father figure but i don't see them having a lot of shared hobbies uncle ben seems like a very Oh, I don't know. I mean, you see him wearing a Yankees hat, for example, and I don't, you know, you don't see Peter, on the other hand, having a big interest in sports. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, even specifically, you see that he's not particularly good with computers, Uncle Ben. Yeah. You know, like we do sort of set up, you know, one's a science whiz and one not so much, you know, uh, a salt of the earth kind of guy. Uh, Now, Spider-Man 2 mentions that they do have a lot of like, you know, philosophical discussions about, you know, morality, what's right and wrong, justice. You know, we hear about that in the little dream sequence. True. So they certainly have that sort of, you know, basis of connection. True. But that is a really good point, that there are some things that Ben just can't connect with Peter about, you know, or Aunt May for that matter. But specifically, this movie is sort of, I think, a a bow for Peter's soul between two competing father figures. And that's a really good point, that one sort of meets him where he needs it in one place, and one sort of meets him where he needs it in another. So he sort of has to make the make a decision between the two. Exactly. 
You're right. I think Uncle Ben is a very salt-of-the-earth guy. I mean, you hear him say in the movie that he worked for 35 years as the plant's senior electrician, a very hands-on, blue-collar sort of job. Yeah. Very different from Norman, who's writing papers about nanotechnology. Although, as we see shortly, in a very short amount of time, Norman is not afraid to get his hands dirty, too, when it comes to testing his uh, scientific theories. Yeah. And so when we meet Norman in the first part of Spider-Man 1, we see after he drops off Harry, he's at Oscorp, and they're working on a very... Very big project for the U.S. military. They're clearly in some sort of testing area, and they're being paid a visit by a delegation from the U.S. military, led by the very interestingly named General Slocum, which I'm sure many of you are aware. But that was the name of a <laughs> that was the name of a ship, a passenger ship that uh, sank in New York City in I think the 19th century with or the early 20th century. I think it was 19 1904. I believe, yeah, 1904. It was a ship that caught fire and sank in the East River. I give you my honest word, I had no idea about that. <laughs> Do you think there's any significance to him being named after that ship? I, I would say so. I certainly think, if, if nothing else, for himself, that character being named General Slocum, it's kind of, uh, it's a dark foreshadowing because he, you know, he's murdered by Norman and certainly the General Slocum, the ship was destroyed in a fiery inferno. And that's kind of the way that General Slocum in the movie meets his fate. Now, the Slocum ship, was that a military it was, vehicle? Uh, no, it was a uh, passenger steamboat oh, okay. that sank in 1904 with an estimated 1,000 people uh, perishing. Jeez. Well, so the man's kind of a disaster, I guess. Exactly. Just words. like that. It's a very bad name. It's a very unlucky name to have if you're in the New York City area. Wow. Well, that's dark and fascinating. As I said... Uh, huh. I have to. I have to imagine that that was a very deliberate choice. So that'd be like calling him like General Titanic. Exactly. Exactly. It'd be something similar to that, where you're naming somebody after a very infamous disaster. Fascinating. Well, a bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah. It, it, exactly. So we first meet Norman. He's greeting this delegation of uh, military officers, General Slocum, and a couple of the board members from the Oscorp uh, Board of Directors. And it's clear that Norman is under the gun here. He's trying to fulfill the obligations of his contract with the military before time runs out in two weeks. Two weeks. Or else uh, they're going to lose the contract to Quest Aerospace. And you can see that Norman is more than willing to overlook the fact that his top scientist is not comfortable with proceeding to human testing. He's more than willing to sort of obscure that or downplay that fact to General Slocum. And it's, it's not quite lying, but it's certainly sort of uh, distorting the truth, I would say, when he when he has that conversation. And I sort of see this as setting up one of Norman's traits, which is, you know, the antithesis of Peter. Uh, Peter is all great power, great responsibility. Norman is great power, no responsibility, at least no accountability. You know, he's... Okay, there was, there was an aberration. Yeah, some rats turned insane. What are you going to do? Don't Don't bother with it. It's fine. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, it was like oh, it was only one. It was only one example. The rest, like the thirteen out of fourteen, went fine. So let's uh, let's continue. What what's the what's the holdup? So that's probably the first time you see his willingness not to take responsibility for things or accountability and just focus on the success, the power, you know, that would come with it. And so <laughs> we get another famous quote from Norman in this scene where. Uh, General Slocum then turns to Dr. Strom, the head scientist, and uh, asks his opinion. And Dr. Strom says that they have to take the whole line, quote, back to formula. General Slocum is none too pleased at this news. And Norman is incredulous, turns to Dr. Strom and then repeats, back to formula? Seething with anger, seething with 
almost like a betrayal that like, how dare you contradict me in front of uh, our client here? How dare you undermine this corporation? And as we all know, betrayal must not be countenanced. Exactly. <laughs> that that whole scene is important in that it sets up kind of what drives Norman to test the goblin serum, you know, that human enhancement serum. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, Slocum, it would appear, by the way, is relatively new as the liaison to Oscorp on this particular project. He explicitly says that he doesn't really care for Norman and that it was his predecessor who was a much bigger fan of Oscorp. And General Slocum already is very inclined to discontinue this project and move on to whatever Quest is offering. Nothing would make him happier than to Nothing. put Norman out of business. Nothing would I don't make know him why. <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly seems like Norman is a I don't know part- why, but that's, that's high on his to-do list. I would, I would have to argue almost that it seems like the General and Norman are almost too similar in that. That's why they don't get along very well. Interesting point. You know, they're not, they're not at all shy about uh, undercutting other people. They're looking out for themselves or their entities, hmm. which you would expect of somebody in a leadership role like that. But nevertheless, I mean, I think they're just too similar to get along. Very interesting. And so anyway, that's what drives Norman to test the goblin serum, that he's he's up against the wall here in that if he doesn't try it, his company's project is over and their, their company's going to lose all that business. And it seems like Oscorp itself relies, if not entirely, then certainly to an overwhelming degree on military contracts. And I think that's an interesting uh, side note there that certainly look at look at the damage that the goblin wrought. All of that was initiated. All of that had its genesis as a military development project. I mean, they were developing these serums to make people stronger, like unnaturally strong, and this unbelievably devastating technology as a project for the U.S. military. So you can imagine what the what the uh, result would be if, if stuff like that were employed in warfare. Yeah. I mean, these are weapons of mass destruction we're talking about here, really. And, uh, and I think it's interesting, too, that Norman is all about power. He wants power. And so he creates more powerful weapons for, you know, the branch of society that is all about power. But in as far as like, you know, Norman reflects an antithesis of responsibility, a complete lack of responsibility. I think it's interesting that like, you know, when Norman goes to practice on himself, he says, oh, you know, this is the one of the dangers of lab science. You know, you got to get a little messy sometimes. You could read that in some part as being a little bit responsible almost Except Mendel Strom is there to remind us this is not the way it's supposed to happen. Like, this is not proper procedure at all. No, you're absolutely right. And that, that, I, like, I love that whole scene. I mean, I, I always felt bad. Um, I, feel, I feel so bad for Dr. Strom when he's murdered like that. Poor Mendel. But certainly, you're right. He's pointing out the whole time that this is not how we should be doing it. There, we, we, we have to have the proper medical team. We have to have the proper support staff to back this up. This is so dangerous. Do you, like, do you realize what, you know, if you test this on yourself and it goes wrong, what could happen to you? Like, we need to stop and slow down here. And Norman saying, like, no, like, we, if we don't do this now, this company is going under and I will not let that happen. I built this company myself. I will, I will be damned if it goes under because we didn't test this in time. Right. And I'm going to do it myself. And sometimes, as a scientist, you have to perform these experiments on yourself. So it's daring. And it's courageous. It is. It is. But ultimately, it's uh, it's irresponsible. You know, and that's more of him being irresponsible. You know, he doesn't want to wait two weeks. He doesn't want to have to worry about the insanity. You know, he doesn't want to get things together with a proper staff. So that's another moment of him not taking responsibility for his actions, not doing things the right way. Um, but now, just as Norman tested on himself, <laughs> it's time for us to test ourselves as well in a little game called Brilliant or Lazy. Brilliant. 
can Spider-Man come out to play? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean. You want to go first? Shall I go first? I'll, I'll go first. I would love to go ahead. <laughs> see if I can stump you with my question here. Okay. <clears throat> In the movie, how many police officers attempt to arrest the Green Goblin during his feigned surrender during the World Unity Festival? Oh, barnacles. And uh, just to let you know what I'm talking about, it's the it's when the police officer yells, hold it right there, and Spider-Man says, oh boy. oh boy, because he knows what's about to happen. Oh no, I know, I know what it is. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think it's, if I remember, if I can see it in my mind's eye correctly, is it three? That wax one left, wax one right, and then kicks one right down the middle? Sorry, Peter. No? You're close. I thought it was three that when I f- thought of the question, but I actually watched the clip. It's four. Oh, man. If you, free, if you pause it for okay, a brief second, what's the fourth guy you'll do? see there's four police officers coming up on him. It's, it, it's like you blink and you miss it, but there's four. And if you watch him beating them up, he does actually strike four officers. Hmm. It, I know it's four seems like a weird number because I thought it was three. Then I thought it was five when I first watched it, but it's actually four. Okay. Well, hey, that's the name of the game. I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now it's my turn to uh, stump you. Let's see. Sean? In which Oscorp laboratory does Norman's fateful transformation transpire? I'm looking for the name I'm, of the laboratory. I want to say the it's Lab C34. Is that your final answer? That they are. I know. I I know because I I want to say they have that in the video game, but for some reason C34 is what comes to mind. But I know there's like a number on the wall yeah, that there you is. see in the you, background. You, I just can't. I want to say it's like 34. Or something like that, but I honestly could not tell you anything Sean, more specific. Sean, you are, you are, you are one off, my friend. It is C thirty five. Oh but, uh, man! But still, that's as Goblin said, impressive. That's that's pretty good. Well, it's you, not bad. You were right um, on the mark too. I mean, you know, we were both we off. We're just by one slightly off. With our yeah, we're both off by one. I, I think of like the Lego set comes to mind. It, you know, it's got the C thirty five in the back, and for whatever reason. You know, that always seemed prominent well, that, to me. That's what that I'm saying. Like, they put it sticker. on the merchandise. I'm pretty sure they have it in the video game, too, because there's a level where you have to, like, go through the Oscorp laboratory trying to stop the chemical weapons program that apparently in the game they're doing. Hmm. Um, so I know that's why I, I know I saw that number somewhere, but I just, uh Very close. So close. Very close. That's okay. You got it right off the bat, too, because if you were going to get a little stumped, I had multiple choice prepared. Uh, one of them was going to be 2319. I looked forward to saying that, <laughs> but... Uh, but you were right on the ball with that, with C-34. So close. But uh, ultimately, lazy. Uh, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, not in this trivia game, unfortunately. Couldn't have said it better myself, Sean. But speaking of hand grenades, speaking <laughs> of hand grenades and other weapons, uh, Norman Osborn. <laughs> uh, uh, when we last left Norman, uh, he had just irresponsibly tested on himself murdered Dr. Mendelstrom, and taken his first steps into being a major maniacal thorn in New York's side. Uh, not exactly an upstanding citizen. But I also think the movies take great pains to, to portray Norman as sympathetic at times. Like, I think the best example of that is later on when we see the board firing him from Oscorp, essentially, or yeah. forcing him to resign, really. And mm-hmm. obviously, we all know the background of that is that he tests the serum himself. He becomes the goblin. He gets those new powers. He begins using the Oscorp technology, and he bombs Quest Aerospace and kills General Slocum and a lot of the Quest people in the process. So he takes out his his number one rival in terms of this military contract. And then, for whatever reason, that company, after it's attacked, 
decides to merge with Oscorp. And as part of the deal, Norman has to resign. And just as Norman is proudly announcing to the board that their revenue is up, their stock is up, everything's looking good for Oscorp. They're the number one supplier to the US military. He's clearly proud of himself and beaming with this great news. And it's immediately turned on, on its head when the board tells him bluntly and with no wiggle room, no room for negotiation, nothing, that he has to leave. Because the last thing they want is a power struggle with entrenched management. You're out, Norman. That, that line right there says it all. You're out. Almost like that they're, they're happy yeah, to yeah. see him go, which I feel like you get a sense of that early on whenever he meets those board members in the, in the lab for the first time. Almost like they're annoyed or at least... They're not happy to see Norman. Like, they're very stiff and formal. Un it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, Balkan in particular. Yeah, Henry Balkan just seems to have it out for him for some reason. Yeah, where, whereas Mr. Fargus seems a little bit more on friendlier terms with the Osborne family, especially Harry. Yeah, maybe slightly more sympathetic, yeah. Nevertheless, I mean, the board was unanimous. I mean, we see Norman plead. I mean, absolutely, you know, heartbroken, pleading with Maximilian Fargus to try to do something about this. And Max is the one that has to deliver the bad news and, you know, tell him that, nope, we are unanimous. I started this company. Do you know how much I sacrificed? <laughs> and honestly, I, I completely sympathize with him in that moment. I really do. I feel so, I feel bad for him. I mean, yeah, yeah. I would feel bad for anybody that took a company that from just an idea in their head, put in hours and hours of their own toil, tested their products and theories and formulas on themselves and took a lot of risk and built it into a really successful company only to have it stolen from them. I would, I, I completely sympathize with Norman and his feeling of betrayal right there, completely independent of whatever revenge he gets later on as the goblin. Right, right. Yeah. Ignoring the fact that he went on a murderous rampage a couple of times, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, it's unfair what the board does to him and you definitely sympathize with him. Yeah. Did, do you know whose idea that was, that he started that company? Who's that? Well, that was that was Willem Dafoe's idea. That was his contribution. Hmm. Earlier on, you know, the idea was maybe that he came from, like, old money, hmm. you know. Uh, but Willem thought that, like, really, he should have started the company. That's interesting. And I, and I think that adds a lot. It's certainly a different layer of context. Well, I think so, because certainly in American culture, we hear a lot about the quote-unquote rags-to-riches story. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the Osbournes were you know, dirt poor when they started, but certainly I think it speaks very highly of this idea that you can, in America, you can start a company and it can become a multi-billion dollar enterprise. I mean, look at, we've had that a lot in just the last number of years with Facebook and Amazon and Oscorp, it kind of seems to fit that mold where it started out with Norman Osborne just doing experimentation and investigating various scientific technologies. And then it grew into this hugely influential and profitable uh, military contractor. I mean, and certainly we all know that the military contractors are very powerful, very influential companies. Mm -hmm. So I, again, I think that scene really humanizes Norman. I mean, who wouldn't feel betrayed in a situation like that? And who wouldn't, I mean, who wouldn't want to do something about it? And I'm, again, I'm not con or condoning what Norman did at the Unity Day Festival or any other time, but certainly I think, again, it, it kind of shows, takes pains that he's not, at least at the outset, he's not just killing for killing's sake. It's because of some sort of slight or some sort of wrong that has been done to him. It doesn't become sadistic and senseless until later on, but certainly at the outset there, it's almost like they want you to, I don't, I don't want to say they want you to cheer for when he bombs the, the board members at the festival there, but again, I don't think the movie tries to portray them all that sympathetically either. I don't think they want you to feel all that bad that the board members were murdered. There like is that. a sense that they had it coming. Yeah, exactly. There was a sense of like uh, karma there. Yeah. 
And you know what's interesting is that that moment is a little bit, you could say, paralleling a similar moment that Peter has. You know, when Peter is slighted by the wrestling promoter who's supposed to give him that 3000 bucks, and he doesn't, there is that little bit of a, yeah, good for you, Peter. Hmm. Forget that, that promoter, a jerk, when Peter you know, lets yeah, him go. Yeah, that is... That's a very interesting point. I, I never thought about that, but you're right. And there's something similar with Norman, when you're like, yeah, forget these guys. Norman, of course, is a much darker reflection of that, because instead of just letting a, a thief go, he <laughs> actively murders a bunch of people. But I, I'm sure there's a little bit to it that, like, this could be the path that Peter's choice would lead to, if he would let it. Mm -hmm. You know, if Peter chose to be selfish and only focus on himself and his own self-interests, and not to have that responsibility, this would be what he would become. And it sort of resonates with that choice Goblin makes that sends him down his path. Again, with his lack of responsibility or accountability. You know, these guys are in my way? Well, fine, I'll just kill them. Hmm. <laughs> and I'll blame it on the Goblin. Yeah, I mean, it's almost cathartic in a way, like when you compare it to that scene with Peter, because certainly, again, you don't, you don't feel all that bad for the fight promoter no. for being robbed after he was such a jerk to Peter. And then likewise, you don't, you don't really feel that bad for the board members after they completely screwed Norman over, you know, with control of the company there after they betrayed him uh, all in the pursuit of greed. Yeah. At the same time though, I mean, that's the name of the game. That's, that's capitalism for you. That's big business. You know, that's the dog eat dog world that uh, Norman's in. Well, I was going to say in a way though, it's like Norman's undoing with Oscorp is his own philosophy of like, well, you do what, do what you have to do to get to the top. You're absolutely and right. Certainly the board members, they employed that philosophy by saying, well, Norman's keeping us back. Let's get rid of him. You know, we can make more money if, you know, with Quest, if we get rid of Norman. So we'll do that. And we don't care about these notions of fairness or justice. Yeah, or They got rid of him in a sense, and he got rid of them all, right? Yeah. yeah and Norman just takes it to a much more primal state of, quote unquote, getting rid of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, they were, they were both just uh, employing that philosophy using different means. But certainly, I mean, it's it's two sides of the same coin. But Live by capitalism, die by capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Unity Bombing, too, is one of the places where, like, Norman slash the Goblin realizes just how powerful Spider-Man is. I mean, when... That's true. That's true. There's a, a kind of hilarious moment when he grabs Peter's fist and says, impressive, you know, even if it's mostly for naught. Well, the interesting thing about that statement when he says impressive when he's fighting Peter is it's a callback to that very first scene where he meets Peter at the university and tells him that it's impressive that he was able to read and understand his paper on nanotechnology. Yeah. I think that's another deliberate callback. He's saying it just in a very different context. Yeah, Norman appreciates what Peter is because of his intelligence, you know, and his attitude of being able to, to accomplish a lot on his own. And the goblin side of him appreciates Peter for that raw power. You know, mm -hmm. either one has things that they find that they appreciate, you know, because they are quote unquote power in a sense, you know, knowledge is power. And, and that's a really neat way that they verbally connect those two ideas. But you know what? Now that you mention it, I think you're right. I think the Unity Day Festival is the first time that he's actually aware that Spider-Man is, he's not just a vigilante that is making a name for himself in the newspapers. He's actually a pretty powerful, genetically enhanced being that has superpowers and attributes that the normal person in the police department, you know, are not even close to possessing. Yeah. So I think, I think he's almost like kind of rudely awakened into that. Like he actually has a formidable opponent here. Yeah. And that's why I think instead of fighting him, he decides that, you know what, maybe it'd be better if we could go into business together or we could uh, partner up and see what our powers could do. He also has his first really creepy moment with MJ. And we'll get back to that later. Hello, my dear. Oh, yes. 
I can't even do it as well as he does. He does it fantastically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he might as well like turn into a Tex Avery wolf and have his tongue roll out. Well, Willem Dafoe's delivery is always it's always very hammy like that. He's always playing up these lines. He's always saying them with a lot of bombast, with a lot of energy, a lot of almost over the top sort of enthusiasm. You know, hello, my dear. Yeah, top notch. I mean, and it works. It works, it works perfectly. It works perfectly. Really well. And I know a lot of people talk about the costume in that movie, and a lot of people that criticize these movies talk about the so-called Power Ranger costume that they had Norman wear, that you know, the Green Goblin costume looks very cartoony, looks very childish, it looks he's very... He's wearing that dumb Power Rangers mask, but he's scarier without it on. <laughs> you know, like, uh, that costume gets a lot of flack, but I actually think it works very well with the tone of the movies. I think it works very well with the kind of delivery that Willem Dafoe brings to the role. I think I think it works really well as it is. I think it conveys everything that the, the filmmakers wanted to convey. I mean, I know they went through a lot of effort, a lot of iterations to try to make a suit that made sense, that was scary, that represented who Norman was, who the Goblin was. And of course, we know what they eventually settled on. But at one point, though, they were trying to find something that was a little more Halloween Goblin-y before settling on the more corporate military aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Because a matter of fact, I'm fairly certain that originally it was just the glider that Norman had created. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately they decided, well, let's make the suit part of it, you know, and that'll work that in. That's how he gets gets a suit. Um, as uh, William Manser, who was one of the designers on the film, said, at a certain point, there was a realization that a clean direction for the Goblin would be that the suit fit with the glider, potentially made by the same company. This manufactured look means there's potentially less chaos in him since it's built by a corporation, not a crazy person. Hmm. It's not a maniacally crazy Halloween idea of him running around and scaring people, but the insanity of it is him using this power. Hmm. It gave the Goblin a different edge. And I'm taking that from the uh, Behind the Mask of Spider-Man book, which is a great book worth checking out. But it is interesting because it might not be like the green scaly thing from the comics, but the suit and the glider are representative of like physical, scientific, and corporate prowess of Norman. Hmm. You know, like this is the peak of Oscorp Industries that he's using as his defining feature. So not only is it strong in a brilliant scientific advancement, but it's also that capitalistic prowess, you know, shows his business acumen, that uh, achievement of his corporation. So that's all mixed in there as well, that he carries with him as the goblin. Absolutely. And this is, in a way, his crowning achievement. It, it, it has nanotechnology. It has this you know, performance enhancer that they developed from scratch. It has the flight suit. I mean, it just has everything that he, he wanted it to be and everything he thought that the military would, would be able to use in combat. So they clearly put a lot of thought into what kind of weapon systems would be on that glider. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's talk about it has a machine gun. He has bombs, you know, pumpkin bombs. He has, yeah. for some reason, he has a, uh, a sleep. Big knives sticking out of it. Exactly, like big knives. And in the video game based on the movie, he has these uh, what they call homing spikes. You know, he can launch like what are like arrows almost that will home in on the enemy and stab them. Whoa. He also has, in the video game based on the movie, he has razor bats, which are these almost like drones, but they have these sharp edges and they go and cut you instead. Well, we see his razor bats in the movie, too, when he throws them at Spider-Man in the burning building. Hate those things. Right. And like you said, he's got sleeping gas for some reason. Yeah, he has sleeping gas that he can launch from his own fingertips. <laughs> so clearly, again, they put a lot of thought into what kind of weapons this glider would have. It, it seems and he's to got be a trident hidden in his secret compartment. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. I don't know where he pulls that trident from. Well, it, it seems to me that the glider was designed almost for like relatively close quarters combat. I mean, maybe not like face to face, but certainly it's meant to be used where you're with, you know, with, you're relatively close to your enemy, you know, for a machine gun and for these other things to be able to function with the intended accuracy and uh, you know, efficacy. Can you imagine real soldiers using the goblin glider? Just a bunch well, of them running around in a goblin glider? And that's... I feel like I keep harping on that, but ultimately that's what I find interesting, that this technology was not developed in a vacuum. It was developed, again, for use by the U.S. military, and that's what I'm trying to get my head around. Can I imagine the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. Army using that kind of technology in battle? Would that actually be effective against enemy soldiers? I don't know, and that's what I'm trying to figure out here. I mean, the machine gun certainly would be useful, but... I mean, I feel like the glider, as we've seen, the glider could be easily knocked out of the sky. It has technological limitations. I feel like it, it is not at all impervious to enemy attacks. So I really don't know what the usefulness of that would be in battle. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, the, is Norman's suit armored? I mean, but armor adds to the weight. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm just trying to say that I don't, I, I feel like the military usefulness of that glider and suit, it's impressive. Maybe it's more of like a psychological weapon than anything else. Like it scares you. It's certainly makes an entrance. It certainly is noticeable, but is it is it practical? Is it useful in, in combat? I don't know. I, I mean, he did seem to catch the Quest Aerospace people off guard. That's for sure. Right. Now, I mean, having said that, I think that the Quest Aerospace quote-unquote exoskeleton seems more uh, realistic, but like, it's also clearly a lot jankier, I would say, than the oh, goblin for sure. glider. I mean, the I, glider is very maneuverable. You know, it's just a big tin can with a couple guns on the side. I oh, mean, it, I, it, that's even le- that's even less that. practical. <laughs> well, it, it, certainly, it doesn't seem like the armor on that thing helped them very much against goblins' attack. I mean, that that pilot. Who was would pl- ever agree with that over the the goblin glider? I mean, because you're getting at least two things. Like, yeah, maybe the performance enhancers, like. Oscorp's patented steroid brand isn't, you know, completely operational yet. But you're getting the darn glider in the suit. What what all does Quest Aerospace have except for that big tin can with a couple guns stuck to the side? Exactly. I mean, really, I, I think you're right. Like, Oscorp's program there was a lot better than Quest. Quest, as far as we know, did not have any sort of companion steroid or performance enhancer, whereas it seems like the Oscorp program was both glider, flight suit, and the serum. So you're getting like almost like a three for one deal. Any yeah, one of General those things. General Slocum really had to go out of his way, turning a blind eye toward all the things that Oscorp had to offer to decide that Quest Aerospace was better. Well, it just goes to show you that his dislike of Norman Osborn really, uh, you know, was pretty, <laughs> pretty devastating to him there. Yeah. You know what though? I'm I'm thinking about it. And it's like if you're an infantryman and you see that glider coming at you, that I would that would be pretty dangerous. It could be a fear tactic. It's like in World War One, you're a soldier in the trench and you see this big metal hulking wagon coming at you and i mean the tanks made their introduction in that war and certainly at the time they didn't really have a lot of effective anti-tank measures and i have to imagine it would be similar if you're in combat and you see this glider coming at you from the sky how are you going to defend yourself against that you really can't he has bombs he has machine guns he has you know chemical weapons he has gas he has like a variety of measures and that's not even counting the human enhancement serum whereas like if you're in hand to hand combat with the goblin or somebody under the who has been modified by that serum you don't have a chance i mean he is so much stronger quicker not to mention i think it, i mean i think it's plenty terrifying regardless of what it looks like i think yeah maybe the 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 mask looks a little i don't know looks a little campy but certainly I wouldn't be focusing on the mask. I think what's scarier is what he does, what he does when he's in the costume or without the costume, but certainly in the costume, which is murder, you know, throw bombs at people, shoots, you know, a machine gun from his glider, razor bats. I mean, the guy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I No matter what he was wearing, I would be more concerned with the bomb flying at my face. Yeah. For what it's worth, I think I think the mask, it had to come from somewhere else because we see another person in that green suit and on that glider in that first scene at the, at the Oscorp laboratory, but we don't see any mask. And so I have to imagine that Norman might have made that mask himself or he pulled it from somewhere. I mean, maybe it was something in a collection he had. I don't know. Yeah. Because I think the mask clearly was not part of the flight suit costume. It was clearly not part of the what was intended to be worn while you're operating that glider. It, it clearly came from somewhere else, whether it was in his house or something he had lying around at the company. I don't know. He, he definitely has a thing for masks, which is interesting. You know, that's that's well established. Yeah, because we see his house. We see his his walls are just coated in masks of various origin from from all over the world. I mean, he clearly has a thing for masks. And so that's why I, I don't think it's that far fetched to say that he had this green mask already in his collection and he just decided to start wearing it with the with the flight suit. Perhaps he had the flight suit made based on the look of that mask. Maybe he liked it and said, hey, can you do it in this color? Why not? Well, it, exactly. I'm just wondering, like in my personal headcanon, like maybe he made the mask for himself at some point earlier because of his love of masks. He said, oh, I'm going to make this as part of my hobby. Hmm. It's very, very possible. I mean, you have to imagine that Oscorp has the manufacturing capacity to make something like that. If they're making military grade technology, they certainly can make a little plastic mask or Fiberglass and then maybe or... just out of, you know, eh, you know, the, the the suit has to be some color. Let's make it green. Can we make it sort of like this same material as this mask? I don't know. I'm looking for some sort of a reason. Well, let's not forget, too, that the flight suit was still in the testing stages. And I have to imagine in combat, I don't know if you would wear something green like that because you'd right. be able to see that from quite a distance away. Right, it doesn't right. really do a lot for blending into your surroundings. I mean, I'm just thinking about military uniforms, and I don't think they would go for something that obvious. but. I'll bet you I'll bet you somebody at some point has uh, looked at these masks on his wall and specifically analyzed what each of them are, what they mean, where they're from and if what they symbolize, whether it's war or aggression or hunting. I mean, who knows? But there definitely has to be a, a reason why he has all of these masks on the wall. Well, I know as far as the production crew is concerned, um, some of those masks are like four thousand dollar. They're just renting them. Uh, you know, because some of them are wow. like antiques, some of them wow. are new. Interesting. But they they picked a lot of like tribal war based masks like they said you know they didn't pick like fertility masks or anything i was going to say i was kind of figuring they were meant to be warlike in posture they were meant yeah. to be masks of aggression of domination of subjugation of conquering whatever yeah and maybe that's because that's the persona that he knows is within him or wants to embody i don't know you know they serve a practical purpose in the movie to explain why he decides to put on a mask but norman obviously has some sort of connection or interest in these things and I don't know. I wonder if it has to do with uh, an interest in maybe psychology, his own psychology, an awareness of there being different aspects of himself, um, some of them perhaps more uglier than others uh, than he would want to admit to. I don't know. But uh, maybe even if Norman doesn't understand that, or if that's not the way he feels about the masks, for me, the presence of the masks reminds me of all the different sort of personas that we have you know the heroic side the more selfish side you know we see both of those in peter as well as norman you know mj puts on a mask you know for her who she is at home is very different from who she is in school and who she is at school is very different from who she is with peter so we all have these different sides to us hmm. uh and i think you know what the story of norman shows is that we can sort of choose which side of us that we want to give the most airtime to. 
which side we want to give into, which side we want to promote and support. Because we do have these different masks, but in the end, we are the mask that we choose to be. Hmm. No, I, I would agree with that. So people contain multitudes, and I think that begs the question, is Norman culpable for all of this? Like, you know, because he seems quite surprised when the goblin appears and, you know, when he finds all these people dead. Uh, it, it, I think Norman would have you believe, and I think Norman would like to believe himself, that he isn't responsible. Again, with the lack of responsibility. He, he would rather not take responsibility for those things. It's the goblin did it, not me. Even when the goblin appears to him in the mirror, the goblin says, don't play the innocent with me. You've known all along. So, sort of perhaps letting us know that it's all part of Norman's mind. And I think he's actively choosing not to accept that as part of him. But he knows, and he sort of turns a blind eye to that part of himself. Up until the point where he freely lets it go, you know, and uses it to his benefit. Well, he said he does say himself that we are who we choose to be. Absolutely. And I think that's yeah, objectivist uh, quality that, you know, you want to be great, be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I made this company. I did it. This is who I am. And you're right. He chooses ultimately to be the goblin. You know, Norman chose his path. Peter chose the way of the hero. And, and then, even in own. that same scene, to each their own. Exactly. Yeah. I could just, I could never see Norman having like a come to Jesus moment you know, related to his role in the military industrial complex. No, I mean, for one thing, I think Norman literally represents the devil. <laughs> you know, I think there's there's a lot of religious overtones to this. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, so very unlikely he could have a come to Jesus moment. Uh, and then not the least of which, too, is that um, objectivist philosophy he has. You know, he wouldn't. You know, he believes he's right. He believes he's the only thing that matters. There is no quote-unquote Jesus in any metaphorical sense or otherwise to come to. It's all about him. It's all about acquiring as much power as possible. All the other teeming masses just serve to lift him up because he's exceptional and he er he deserves it. He's earned it. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. From his very core, there's no turning away from this. And then that's what's interesting about the goblin is that the goblin, I think, is always a part of him. It's always a part of that driving businessman spirit he has. But society and social expectations and pressures keep Norman from acting on that really base, purest level of it. Mm -hmm. And as the goblin says, you know, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to do what you can't, to say what you can't, to remove others in your way. Mm -hmm. But I think he's always a part of him. And then that goblin formula just releases it. And then Norman allows him to be released. Absolutely. I, I think with every every enhanced individual, really, whatever powers they get, they always seem to enhance stuff that was already inside of them, whether it's for good or for bad. I mean, certainly, this you know we see that in the Spider-Man trilogy and a lot of other superhero movies that the, the, I think the person underneath the powers or underneath the suit is fundamentally who they are. But whatever their enhancements are, they also enhance the personality of the individual or their sense of morality or their view of the world, whatever it happens to be. Sure. And, you know, I have to wonder if we can read into this some sort of connection with a color green to Norman. You know, the green goblin, his house is green, the mask is green, the lab is green. There's an undercurrent of green to everything. And yeah, you could say uh, just the costume design, the, the set design. But I have to wonder if you could also sort of read that as a latent manifestation of this goblin personality within him like whatever makes him the green goblin like we said you could argue it's always there 
and part of the hint or suggestion of that, that that's the driving force behind everything, even if he doesn't let it come out in its full primal form, is like these hints of green in his castle in the sky, his apartment, you know, in the lab, in the, the colors of Oscorp, in the suit, in the mask, you know, if we see, if we connect the color of green to the Green Goblin, and we see how much of it is already there in his company, I think it's another suggestion that that, you know, persona was always somewhere inside him. He just didn't let it out, out of, you know, respectability of the social norms. <laughs> Norm. <laughs> <laughs> the social Normans, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I was just going to say, just as like a side tangent, I mean, think about everything that's associated with the color green. You know, green is associated, obviously, with money. So greed. True. Financial advancement. And then also the phrase green with envy. Yeah. Norman is clearly an envious person. He envies power. He envies money. He envies influence. He envies control. He envies dominance. Mm -hmm. you, know, you think about the phrase green-eyed monster. It means somebody who's jealous. You know, I, I think the, the color green certainly has a lot of connotations for some less than savory things. Yeah, let's well, say. let's let's not forget, too, just moldiness, nastiness, sickness. Yep, that's true. Like green is like a, it's a it's a color of mold. So if your food has anything green on it, it's probably well, unless it's like lettuce or a vegetable. But usually, yeah, it means there's some sort of spoilage there. So between the monetary implications, the the enviousness and the sickness that all applies to Norman. And interestingly enough, in the movies, uh, when you see the color green associated with Peter, it's normally because he's going down that path mm -hmm. of Norman's. Yes. You know, when he shows up to the wrestling arena, it's bathed in green. When he skips out on painting with his uncle, they painted in green. Uh, there is a constant recurring of green. Even when Norman has that moment where he approaches Peter at the graduation, and sort of appeals to him, makes him a member of the family in a sense. The color of the graduation is green. Their cap and gowns are green. I mean, yeah, that, that absolutely. I think that's an interesting observation about where they use the color green in that first movie. Visually portraying the, the, the paths that the two of them take and how those sometimes intersect in a somewhat dangerous way for Peter. Well, I think what's interesting, too, about the conversation at graduation is that the graduation ceremony happens not too long after Uncle Ben's murder. No. And obviously, yeah. Peter was very emotionally vulnerable at that time. Yeah, good you know, We point. see them get home from the graduation, him and Aunt May, and immediately Peter goes up to his room and starts crying because he's just so upset that Uncle Ben wasn't there. And certainly, hmm. I think he's probably more susceptible than ever in that moment to having some sort of pseudo father figure, you know, bec become his mentor and benefactor like Norman. That's a really good point. Yeah, in some ways, Norman goes after him when he's in his weakest moment. Exactly. Not that Norman, I think, is... I don't think he means anything ill by that. I mean, there's obviously the problem of him not, like, caring about his son enough. But putting that aside, I don't think his appeals to Peter in that form are necessarily bad. No. And, you know, to his credit, Peter doesn't give in to it either at all. Because it's right after that he makes an even firmer commitment to being what Uncle Ben would want him to be. By becoming the Spider-Man. Exactly. But... Just as Peter faces a choice, so now we face a choice. Because we are who we choose to be. <laughs> That's a great name for this segment, by the way. I love that. <laughs> it is. That's perfect. It is great. But this is why only fools host a Spider-Man podcast. Because you never know when some lunatic co-host will come along with a sadistic choice. Such as... Would you rather 
crash at the Osborne penthouse, or rent a place from Mr. Ditkovich. Ooh. Make your choice, Sean, and see how a podcaster is rewarded. <laughs> I mean, the Osborne house is pretty dope. I mean, they live in a very luxurious... It is pretty dope, but it's also got Osbournes living in it. I mean, Harry's pretty cool at this point. He's not Goblin Jr. yet. He still he seems like a pretty cool guy to hang around. He likes basketball, I think. So, I mean, I, I feel like... If, yeah, I mean, if, as long as you don't mind all those masks looking at you... Yeah, that's what I was about to, to say, though. Like, they, like, he has that creepy mask room. And, <laughs> I mean, I think Norman is kind of a low-key alcoholic. Hmm. So, I think I wouldn't really want to be around him when he's drunk. And I feel like being like a very stressed business executive, he's probably drunk a lot of the time. That's a good point. And I'm, I'm not even just talking about drunk on power, <laughs> but like he's like alcoholic drunk. Yeah. Um, so that would be kind of disturbing. I don't know if I'd want to deal with that. He seems like he'd be a really abusive housemate who would yell at me for stupid things. But it's a really nice house and like it some is a very... really nice house. But he seems to expect a lot. Yeah. Don't don't forget his definition of being a slob too. You know, he he tolerates no slobs. Yeah, that's tough. It's basically it's like would I rather live in a really cool Manhattan penthouse like you know in the middle of the city where you know there comes there's a lot of clout and a lot of prestige that comes with that like you know, people would respect you or at least they would be jealous of you for living in such fancy real estate but on the other hand it does have Norman who <laughs> is kind of a terrible person so boy I don't know I know it's not easy that's why that's why I picked it that's why I'm I, holding the I know penthouse I know that's, in one cable car and uh, I'm dangling. Mr. Ditkovich, in the other hand. Mr. Ditkovich is weird. He's kind of nosy. But he also seems like a good person. But his apartment's a dump. It is a dump. I would have more autonomy there. Yeah, it's true. But you're like, you're like right above a subway or something. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, you know what? I've, I've got to choose the Osborne penthouse. I know I would just try to stay away from Norman. I'm sure it's big enough that I could have my own room that I wouldn't have to deal with him as much. Okay, yeah. And I would just have to be smart enough to avoid him when he's drinking and having his demonic hallucinations. Yeah. But it's a nice house, and I'd be close to all the cool stuff in New York in the middle of Manhattan there. So Osborne penthouse. I'm, I'm, I'm living there. It's a dope palace in the sky. <laughs> you know, just if you hear any uh, laughing at night, just... Show yourself out. Lock your door. Like, well, not that that would do, not that that would do much, but I'll, you know. <laughs> plus, like, plus, by the way, Harry apparently can make a mean omelet, which you know I love breakfast food, so that's true. So, okay, Osborne Penthouse for sure. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, well, that's your choice. I think I wouldn't risk it. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, although the Ditkovich apartment looks so depressing, I don't know. At the end of the day, though, Mr. Ditkovich. Seems like a pretty good guy. I mean, in fairness, like being a month behind on your rent and Mr. Ditkovich, like if he, he hounds you over it, but like he doesn't seem to ever like threaten to kick him out. So yeah. I, I don't know. He's not threatening to take you to court to evict you. But, Seems like a pretty, pretty but cool guy. You also got to deal with his loud card games, the loud music, his daughter who has like the crush on you and it's kind of awkward. And the apartment itself, as I said, is kind of a dump. So I mean... It is kind of a dump. Uh, okay, okay. My choice is that as soon as I hear maniacal laughter emanating from the walls i'm out i'm getting a place at the dickovich apartment that's fair (laughs) all right that's my choice all right what have you got for me sean oh boy okay oh boy (laughs) would you rather be the test subject in dr strom's test assuming that he got the two weeks to get the proper trial together with uh the medical team and and all of that testing the same serum that norman used yeah 
Or would you rather be the person in charge of Oscorp's HR department after finding out about Dr. Strom's on-the-job injury slash death? Would you rather, <laughs> you know, the HR person that has cool. to investigate that and find out what happened and uh, tell the rest of the company that we had this fatality in the workplace? What would you rather do? Well, on the one hand, I'm, I'm definitely going insane if I take that formula. It would appear. Although there is the proper medical team, so... That's true. Maybe things could have been different than how it turned out with Norman. We don't know, but I mean, you're still putting yourself in harm's way by testing the serum. Even with a proper medical team, I think you're still going to go insane. I don't know if like jabbing me with epinephrine after it happens is going to like stop the insanity from flowing through me. I I don't know. Assuming that's what happens. I mean, I know we talked about maybe uh, it's just enhancing what Norman already has within him. uh, That's what I mean. It's It's a risk because you might get all the good sides of it, but none of the bad that Norman had. Or it could you know, alter you in a very bad way as well. Yeah, but like, I would probably also go insane as the the HR guy. Uh, you know what? I think I think the, be- the safest option just not to touch the stuff. Just just don't don't do goblin juice, kids. <laughs> just don't do it. Uh, stay off the stuff. Uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna risk getting bug eyes and. A slight case of insanity. I'll just have to cover up. Uh, well, well, I'm sorry. I said cover up. Uh, I'll just have to tend to the uh, the accident in the workplace. Well, I just I feel bad for you having to deal with uh, OSHA and all the other agencies that would investigate workplace injuries and mishaps like that. So I know that the the red tape you will be dealing with will be monstrous and voluminous. But you're right. But at least you won't have bug eyes and <laughs> aggression, insanity, etc. So. <laughs> Although, I don't know, red tape and bureaucracy can drive you just as insane. I know, I think you're right. I think either way, I pretty much go insane. So, <laughs> it is a pretty sadistic choice to have to make. But, uh, yeah, I guess I am sacrificing superpowers at that point. But I don't know, being able to deal with bureaucracy is a superpower as well, so... Well, that's true. What would you do? What would you choose? I, I would probably pick being the HR guy. I mean, maybe just because I'm, I'm used to dealing with workplace issues now from just in my job, but still, um, I think... It would suck, but I also feel like somebody has, so, I don't know, I feel like it would be interesting to be the Oscorp HR person, given the kind of personalities that we see working at that place. That's true. I feel like that would be a very interesting job. Or maybe we're just cowards. <laughs> Norman would call us cowards. Don't be a coward. Risks are a part of laboratory science. Well, that that is very true. And we all saw that firsthand. <laughs> well, all right. I guess we've uh, we've decided that we're more the office type than uh, the uh, flying around the city on a glider type. But uh, so I'm glad we figured out who we are. Norman would be proud. And hey, speaking of Norman, we've got so much more we want to tell about Norman that this analysis can only exist as a two-part episode. So that's right, true believer. Stay tuned as we venture further into the twisted psyche of this archvillain, his sabotage of Thanksgiving, and finally, his fateful last encounter with Peter Parker. All this and more in the Oscorp Oracle, Part 2. If you're looking for something to do before then, please feel free to swing on by Twitter at SMTT Podcast, as in So Much to Tell Podcast. Until next time... Godspeed, Spider-Fan! <laughs> All right, All right, All right. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs>